The following audio is presented by Grace Church. For more about us, visit discovergrace.com, or you can download our free app by searching Grace Church Orlando on your phone or tablet. Now, we hope you enjoy the message. Well, good morning. So I want to give a little shout out to, we, so we're in a kickball league. Uh, we have three Grace teams. And I know this is totally off script, but we got three Grace uh, kickball teams. And so our Grace red team, you'll see their shirts on today. They are going to the championship today. Yeah. We got some haters because our team lost to them. But, uh, but yeah, so they're, they're playing action at 4 o'clock at the Methodist Church in Oviedo. If you want to show up and cheer them on, just giving them a shout out. They did a great job. They're undefeated with one tie. So good luck, guys and girls. So super excited about that. Um, okay, so we are in our last week in the book Song of Solomon. And can I just say from being up on stage, like, thank the Lord. Like, I'm ready. I'm ready. I think my wife is ready, you know. But uh, it's been fantastic uh, at the same time. So while I'm ready, also, uh, I just want to share a story. So I I went and met uh, a bunch of guys on a Wednesday night. And one of them, who's a newlywed, uh, came and started attending uh, Grace on the first week of Song of Solomon. And he just looked at me and he was like, hey, man, like all seriousness, this has been the most helpful, practical thing for our marriage. Like jumping in, like it has just been so, so helpful. We look forward to it every week. It brings about discussion. We're actually looking forward to the next week going, hey, how should we handle this? And oftentimes it's the spirit who leads to handle those things. I've been getting texts and just all kinds of just great praise about this book while also being awkward, right? And so I hope this has been practical. I hope it's been helpful. And I hope that, uh, man, it it makes you want to pursue Jesus even more in the midst of thinking about relationships with others and your relationship with God. And so this last week, this is where we're headed. We're going to be handling the idea and the concept of purity. So it's a big one to tackle. Uh, You know, growing up, so I got saved when I was 15, 16 years old, and I was a part of a student ministry. And I can remember going week after week hearing all the stats. You know, like 99% of all guys look at things they shouldn't, and the other 1% lie about it. Remember, right? I mean, I heard these stats, and I heard that, you know, this is a struggle for everyone. Purity is a hard issue. I remember hearing, you know, divorce is 50% plus, you know, all of these different stats, right? I, I remember hearing them, but it didn't hit me until I got to Bible college. And our, our president, Dr. Murray, who was a super godly guy, everybody respected him. He had great clout in the community, among others. And he was a, he was a church planner for 10 years in Italy. He had done all kinds of work for the Lord. He was an incredible preacher. And I'll never forget it. We were sitting in chapel, and everybody, by the way, and let me just tell you, he was a manuscript guy. And I don't just mean he wrote everything down. I mean, he read word for word, manuscript style when he preached. I know that sounds like, oh my gosh, that's terribly boring. It was amazing. He's the best preacher I've ever heard that does that style. I mean, you you didn't skip a beat. You were engaged the entire time. Anyways, so when he preached at chapel, it wasn't because we had to be there. Everybody showed up to hear this guy. So he shows up. He starts preaching. I don't remember exactly the whole topic, but I remember the story. He told us about his train ride on the way to the mission field. He was leaving America to go to Italy to plant a church. 
And he said he was on a train, and when he went to the bathroom, he saw in the bathroom on the floor a dirty magazine. And he said when he finished using the bathroom, he had thrown the magazine away, and then he stopped dead cold, and he said, but not after I had feasted my eyes upon every page. And then I headed to the mission field. And it was that moment where we were like, what? Like, what? Are you, you were going to the mission field. You're president of the school. What? Like, what did you do? And it was that realization that this is not just an issue for people who don't walk with Jesus. This is an issue. Purity is an issue, period. It affects all of us, whether you're married, single, divorced, widowed, young, old. It doesn't matter. This issue is prominent for us. This is important for us, right? And so that's what we're going to be tackling this morning. It's a big topic. So the first thing that I see in this text, we're in chapter 8 of Song of Solomon. We're going to be in verses 8 and following. So we're ending out the book. The first thing that I see, I've got many sub points. The first one is, is that purity needs protection. Purity needs protection. So let's jump into the text. It says friends in the ESV right above the text. I really think that it's actually the, the woman in the text's brothers, okay? So that's our context. It says this, we have a little sister and her breasts are not yet grown. What shall we do for our sister on the day she is spoken for? If she is a wall, we will build towers of silver on her. If she is a door, we will enclose her with panels of cedar. This is pretty strange language, right? Like the whole book. <laughs> but he, here's the deal. Her brothers are speaking protection over her. They're saying when she was young, in other words, that, that little literally means under the age of 12. So when she's young, they're thinking about, they're contemplating, how do we keep our sister pure? How do we keep our sister holy? How do we watch out for tempting scenarios for our sister? That's the picture here. What shall we do on the day she is spoken for? If she's a wall, in other words, if she keeps her virginity and remains pure, we will adorn her with silver. We'll praise her. We'll, we'll, we'll encourage her. We'll love on her. But if she's a door, we will enclose her with panels of cedar. If she's open and promiscuous, or leaning in that vein, we're going to put up boundaries. We're going to put up walls, so to speak. We're going to put up cedar and defense mechanisms to protect her. It makes me think of James Dobson, and I don't know if he coined this or came up with it, but I just remember reading in his books years ago uh, that he would talk about, you know, raising kids, and he said when they turn 12, you put them in a barrel, and by the, turn, by the time they're 15, 16, you plug the barrel, and then you, you get them out of there about 18, 19, Right? So that's the picture, and that's kind of the picture here. They're saying, hey, how do we protect you? How do we look out for you? What do we need to do to protect you from the world, from impurity, the things that you may be drawn to? So I want to ask you, we're going to dive into this more and more as we go through this text, but just simply, what parameters are you putting up for your children? That's the, so it's brothers here, but it's oftentimes mothers and fathers. Sometimes it's sisters and brothers. But what parameters are you putting up for your children? 
What parameters are you putting up for your brothers and sisters in Christ who you know are struggling in this area? What parameters are you putting up for yourself in that area of purity? You know, it makes me think, I can, I've had countless conversations with parents who are talking about raising their kids. And you know what? It's often this conversation of, hey, have you thought about you know, Snapchat? Have you thought about Facebook? Have you thought about Instagram? Have you thought about putting up parameters? And, and oftentimes the parents are like, I mean, you know, I, I, I ask them, I, I talk to them, but we don't, really, we don't really put up parameters often. And so I, I literally, I, I go to the parent, and I'm like, hey, listen, you need to think through this. You need, you need to work on this. You need to have more conversations. So if you're a parent, I'm just giving a suggestion here. If you're a parent in here, and you got teenagers, middle schoolers, maybe even elementary, and there's no parameters for them when it comes to the internet or their phone, you've missed the boat. You've missed the boat. You've got to jump back. You've got to engage. I know some of you students are in here going like, man, stop talking. What are you doing? Like, I like my phone. You know what I mean? Like, all this stuff. But I'm just telling you, don't miss the boat. They need protection, whether they want it or not. I need protection whether I want it or not. You need protection whether you want it or not. That's the picture here. And then she responds. Let's keep going. The second thing I would say in this text is purity brings peace. Purity brings peace. And this is the woman speaking now. And it's almost like we're in the present, sort of. This is a very confusing text, but we're going to go with it. I am a wall, and my breasts are like towers. Thus I have become in his eyes like one bringing contentment. In other words, what she's saying is I've remained pure. I've grown up. In other words, I am mature and pure, and it has brought peace to my lover. So her purity, her maturity, her growing up in the Lord has brought about peace in their relationship. My now husband is satisfied with me and content. It's interesting that she says purity brings shalom or brings peace or brings contentment. It's a really interesting tie there. I mean, think about that for a minute. How does purity bring shalom or peace? She's saying that she doesn't have other lovers, partners. Personal purity is hers. It belongs and it brings peace into their relationship. So I want to ask you a question. I want to ask you a couple of questions. How often does impurity destroy, decay, and break down peace in your life and those around you? It's so easy for us to think, oh yeah, when it comes to impurity, it just affects me often, but it doesn't just ever affect you. Not only would I say rarely, I would say never does it just affect you. It affects those around you. Sexual sin is serious. It is. The fight for purity doesn't stop when you get married. It doesn't stop there. It's not like, oh, I'm going to be pure, I'm going to be holy all the way up in the marriage, and then I can, I'm good then. No, that's not the case. And all of you know that, but it needs to be said. In our sexualized culture, how do we fight for purity? And so I got a couple of suggestions, okay? The first is, it's not too late to start now. It's never too late to start now. And so I, I was actually um, talking with a, a man, and, and he was talking about how he felt super guilty about never having um, time with his family in prayer and in scripture. And we were talking through that, 
And he just said, man, I feel so much shame over it. And, and I feel bad to where I don't even want to step in to do it anymore. Because I keep missing the boat and it just doesn't happen. And so I get in this revolving door of guilt. And I just feel not worthy. And I was like, you know, I don't think that way. And I said, here's the reason why. I, I heard a, a while back, and this is the only reason why, but it was super helpful for me. This guy named Joshua Straub, you should look him up, by the way. He, uh, he speaks on raising families. He is fantastic. He does um, all kinds of, you know, podcasts and different things. He's on the news sometimes, dealing with, like, crazy scenarios. But anyways, Joshua Straub said it this way. He said, if, as a parent, if you're batting 400, he said, you're winning. 400. So if out of 400, if you bat 400 in your parenting, in what you do, it means that you're winning. So if you have a 400% of being encouraging and loving, it means not shouting, not fighting, not brawling, but you bat 400, you're winning. And I started to think, man, with my devotions with my kids, and that's what I was telling this guy, if I'm batting 400, if I do it every now and then, and I'm pressing and pushing my kids towards Jesus, I'm winning. This is a win for us. They're seeing a model of Jesus matters. They're seeing a model of God matters. Bat 400, right? And so in the same way, when it comes to, to sexual sin, don't think that you're out of the game because you've been messing up over and over. There's grace in Christ. And so start batting 400. Start saying, okay, God, I'm going to think about you today. I'm going to step into you today. I'm going to trust you today. I'm going to repent from this sin today. It's not too late for you. It's not too late for you. And so there's a book, and I'm, I'm just going to share this with y'all. Number one book when it deals with purity, in my, in my opinion. I've read a ton of them. This is my absolute favorite, Finally Free by Heath Lambert. He's a biblical counselor. Here's the cool thing about this book as well. Even if it's not purity and it's not, it's like lust and pornography and all that's not your issue, if you've got some kind of addiction, he's a biblical counselor. He applies addictions in general in this vein. It's just focused on one addiction. So it's super helpful, super applicable. But in this book, he gives, there's a chapter on repentance, Right? And, and it's actually the first chapter. He says the bedrock of having purity in your life is grace. It's grace. And he talks about two different types of grace. And this is stuck with me. I tell it to people. I love this phrase. He said there's forgiving grace and transforming grace. And so let me talk about the first one, forgiving grace. It's that grace that you need forgiveness for of your past, of your present, and of your future that you need to go to God and say, God, I confess I fall short in the area of purity. I've dropped the ball, and I dropped the ball over and over. God, would you forgive me? Would you take away my shame? Would you cleanse my plate? Would you call me justified in your eyes? Would you forgive me? But you don't just need forgiving grace in order to fight purity. You don't just need forgiveness of the things you've done, the things that you've thought, the actions that you've taken, but you need transforming grace. It's that grace that says, I need your power. I need your grace to fight. I need your grace to move the ball down the field. I need your grace to say no to sin and yes to Christ. I need your grace. That is the bedrock. It is the foundation of purity. And how does it all work together? 
It's a word called repentance. And that's not as a believer and as a believer. Repentance is this. God, I confess, would you forgive me? Would you forgive me for all these things that I know are terrible, that fall short of your glory, that are not good, that aren't helpful for me, for my marriage, for my family, for my friends, for everyone? Would you forgive me, God? But not just would you forgive me, but Lord, I confess and I turn from these things and I turn by the grace and the power of the Lord Jesus Christ, by that transforming grace. I repent, I turn to Jesus and I pursue him. At the last chapter, he says that you should have a dynamic relationship with Christ. That's how you fight impurity. That's how you fight sin in your life. And that's for everything. You turn from sin and you see how glorious Jesus is. And by his grace, by his transforming grace, you repent and move forward. It's leaning on Jesus. So what type of grace do you need? Do you need forgiving grace for the past or transforming grace that brings hope for the future. Think about that. So uh, the way I view this is it's not if you fail, but how you respond when you fail. Will you turn to Jesus or will you turn inward? I mean, I wonder if the peace you long for in your relationships now is centered around this issue. And so here's my suggestion. If you're married and this is, you feel like there's not peace in your relationship. I suggest you go to your spouse and say, hey, can we talk about this issue? Can we talk about what's going on in our lives that might be stealing the peace that God intends for a holy and pure relationship? Next thing, purity is valuable. Purity is valuable. Verse 11, Solomon had a vineyard in Bel Haman. He let out his vineyard to tenants. Each was to bring for its fruit, a thousand shekels of silver. But my own vineyard, this is the woman speaking, my own vineyard is mine to give. The thousand shekels are for you, Solomon, and 200 are for those who tend its fruit. I couldn't get a commentary to agree with each other. None of them agreed on what this passage means, what this section means. I sat for like an hour and a half and prayed and stared, and I was like, what is going on? And so I, don't, I can't fill out all the details for you. I'm just gonna be honest. It's confusing on a lot of levels. But I think something is clear in it, and that's what I'm gonna talk about. So the vineyard, when she's speaking, it's a metaphor for her body. And what she's saying in context, if you think about it and you back up for a second, she has waited. She is pure. She is mature. She brings peace. Solomon has great monetary value. He's got all this money, he's got all this stuff, he's got all these vineyards, he can rent it out whenever he wants. He has all this value, right? But even more than money, what she offers is incredible. It has great value. You know, having been a a student pastor, a family pastor, an executive pastor, I've heard so many stories from women concerning this issue. Guys deal with it too, but it's in a different perspective. It's in a different mindset. But I've heard story after story. And so I'll just start with students. When we did a high school uh, relationship retreat, we started one. This was in Indiana. And we we did it every year. And what we found is, is that we were catching the students too late. 
By the time we were talking about, you know, being pure and holy and what relationships should look like, what marriage should look like, all of them have said, man, we've already missed the boat in that area. And so uh, oftentimes what we do is spend a lot of time talking about grace, talking about moving forward and how you still have value, how you are forgiven and set free and finally free and all those things. And we talk about all that throughout the relationship. And we said, man, we need to go back to like middle school. We need to go back to elementary. This is where we need to be taking this, right? But here's what they said in high school. Because they had messed up, so to speak, or however you want to call it, they thought in order to gain value and be someone, they needed to be physical with their boyfriends. That's what they thought. They needed to dress to impress. They needed to be desired by all the other guys. You know what's interesting? That doesn't stop when you become an adult. It's not like you just have this issue and then, oh, I get married and it all walks away. It's interesting, right? I mean, it doesn't just start with, I mean, stop with students. It's into our adulthood. It's this mindset where you reorient your life around seeking value from the opposite sex or from a significant other, someone who you have your eye on. I've seen this and I've heard stories over and over. But here's the thing, in Christian circles, it's not loud. It's not like in high school where everybody knows about it and everything's going on. They don't understand the process. It's not flamboyant. It's not obvious. Men and women seek attention and value from others all the time in inappropriate ways, even in Christian circles. They do. And so I want to ask you, how many of you struggle? I'm getting personal here, okay? But I want you to think through this. We're talking about the area of purity. How many of you struggle with wanting someone other than your spouse to notice you, desire you, and pursue you? And I'm not talking about like a fleeting thought, like, oh, I don't need to be thinking about that. I'm not talking about that kind of thing. I mean, you fantasize about scenarios where you will encounter that person. And you'll find yourself reorienting the way you dress, the way you talk, the way you think around that scenario. The woman is saying, I am a wall. I walk in purity and I bring peace in our relationship. I'm a safe place. And so instead of pursuing impurity and finding value in all of these things, she's saying, I've found value, that I have value intrinsically in God, that I have value because of what I have to offer, that I want to be pure. And so whether you have a broken past and you haven't been pure or, or not, it doesn't mean that you can't move forward bringing peace into your relationship now. That's the picture here. And it makes me think there's a book that came out this is, I don't know, 10 years ago, called Wired for Intimacy. It's about this entire subject. The whole thing is about this guy who researched brains and he figured out that when you set patterns in your life, specifically impurity in this book, when you set a pattern of impurity, it literally rewires your brain to where you have to backtrack and work towards fighting against that impurity. You have to rewire. You have to, that's what repentance looks like in Ephesians 4, right? It says that instead of lying, you speak the truth. And as you stop lying over and over, you start speaking the truth over, it's a rewiring of your brain. So it's not just spiritual, it's neurological. That's the picture, okay? So wired for intimacy, what he found is, is that people don't know their value in Christ. They don't know their value being made in the image of God. And so they, they devalue themselves and offer everything up. 
and they pursue things that are not helpful and that bring destruction instead of peace to their relationships. So that's the picture here. She's saying, I'm valuable. I have value. I want to be pure. I want to be holy. I want to offer peace. God's way is the best way. It is. And so the last thing that I see in this text, and I flipped it. Normally I tell you the big idea at the beginning. I'm telling you at the end this time. So here's the big idea that I see. Those who are pure will see the Lord. Those who are pure will see the Lord. Let's look at the text. It's, it's him speaking, the, the husband he says, you who dwell in the gardens with friends and attendants, let me hear your voice. In other words, he longed to hear her voice. He recognized that she was loved and interesting. He sees her as valuable. He sees her as special. He's saying, I want to hear your voice. I want everyone to know that I'm yours. Then she speaks. Come away, my beloved, and be like a gazelle or like a young stag on the spice-laden mountains. She answers his desire. She speaks to him. And then he an she answers him in another way as well. He, she's saying, come away. I want to be with you. I want to love you. I want to care for you. Be like a gazelle or like a young stag on a spice-laden mountain. So it's really interesting, though. The song ends abruptly. It's almost like she's saying, hey, come away in a desirable kind of way, and then the curtain falls. It's done. And you're like, well, okay. Like, all right. I mean, I get it, but like, okay. We're done? Think about this. The song, this, is, this blew my mind. I'm not kidding. The song ends the way the Bible ends. Think about this. In Revelations 22, the bride asked twice for the bridegroom to come to her and for her. The Song of Songs points to the climax of all history. And so I want to read this with that in mind, okay? I thought this was, I can't say it better. And so I'm going to read it to you. This is Douglas O'Donnell in his commentary. And this is what he says. It is my contention and others that this ending leaves us longing for more. In other words, the song intentionally ends abruptly and inconclusively because the song is not done. Love is not done. God is not done with his great love song and story. The song of songs ends with this eschatological, this end time angst. What's going to happen next? In Revelations twenty two twenty, this is how the book ends, how the Bible ends. In the last chapter and verse of our Bibles, our Lord Jesus, the bridegroom, says, Surely I am coming soon. And the church, the bride, says, Come. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. Make haste. That's how the Bible ends. That's how the song ends. So virginity and eschatology in times is what we have here. And what do we do? What do both topics have in common? Waiting. Waiting for marriage, waiting for the marriage of the Lamb. Today, we as the church, the bride of Christ, join the bride of the Song of Songs and her final plea. As we eagerly await the return of Christ, the descendant of David, the bright morning star, we hold our hands out. 
with eschatological angst, knowing that only in the return and absolute reign of King Jesus can the yearning for love that fills the cosmos be met, consummated in and through and for the glory of Christ. And then he, he closes out with this word from Titus. The Apostle Paul puts it like this. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce, remember, ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. So he's saying, these two are tied. The song ends the way the Bible ends. We're waiting for the coming of the Lord Jesus. We're waiting in purity. We're waiting in holiness. And so I want to ask this, or I want to share this with you. Matthew 5, 8 says, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. And and so I want to put, I want to tell you two stories and wrap this up. And here it is. The first one is, I had a professor named Dr. Moore. And he was talking about repentance. He was talking about being right with God. And he said he had this guy who called him and said, hey, I graduated from seminary years ago. I was attending your class and I lied on several of the tests saying I had read the material that I really hadn't. I aced all the tests, I passed the class, but I'm just calling to confess. Dr. Moore said over the phone, he was like, okay, well, hey man, thank you so much for calling. Here's the thing, I want you to repeat the class. And the guy goes, oh man, like, come on. He goes, no, 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 I'm serious. He goes, you can take it online or whatever, but I want you to read all the material and I want you to repeat the class. And the guy was like, are you serious? And he goes, I'm absolutely serious. I mean, if your heart is you want to repent and you want to make this right, then retake the class. And the guy goes, I'm not doing that. He's like, you're crazy. He hung up the phone. He was like, okay. So I got another story for you. Okay. There was a guy who was addicted to looking at things that he shouldn't. And it became illegal. It became a problem. And in that moment, he was about to go to court. He was meeting with his lawyer. And the lawyer looked at him and said, hey, listen, here's the deal. They mishandled a lot of this information. It's all going to be taken out. We can go to court. You can plead not guilty. You're free to go. I'm just letting you know. Tell me what you want to do. This guy went and met with a guy named Heath Lambert, right? Biblical counselor. And he said, hey, here's my situation. What do I do? You know what Heath said to him? He said, here's the deal, man. He goes, you, uh, he, first he said, all right, is this true? Like, did you really do this? And he said, yeah, you know, I did it. I have it in my possession, all of that. And he goes, all right, well, here's what I'm going to tell you. He goes, if you want to die and hold on to your life physically, presently now, then plead guilty. I mean, yeah, plead not guilty. But he said, if you want to have life forever, and you want to pursue Jesus, and you want to make him your life, you want to make him your own, you want to be pure before him, you want to confess and say, I am guilty, plead guilty. You know what the guy did? He's going to get away scot-free 
walks in court, pleads guilty. He's in jail now. But his soul is saved. And so I want to ask you this morning, what is it in your life that you want to skirt, that you want to act like nothing's going on because you want to save your marriage, your job, your title, you want to save face and not recognize and not fall down before the Lord? What is it in your life? Think about that. Do you want to get right and save your physical circumstances and not meet Jesus and not know Christ and not do those things? Some of you need to come clean, not just to save your situation, but potentially your soul. Turn to Christ, and here's why. When you confess and you come clean, you say, Jesus is my hope. I'm not going to hold on to this job. I'm not going to hold on to whatever I might lose. I'm going to cling to Jesus. And so those who are pure will see the Lord. And we find our purity in Christ as we come clean before him. That's my encouragement to you. Let's pray. Father, we, we thank you for your word. God, I pray that um, I know this word's heavy. God, purity matters. Jesus, you matter. And so, God, I pray that if there are people in this room who are hiding, God, that they would come out and come clean. And they would say, Jesus, save me. And if they are saved and they need to come clean, God, would you bring about repentance in their life? Would you help them to turn from sin and turn to you? God, purify our hearts. Purify my heart. God, we fail in this area, all of us. And that's why we need you. We need your forgiving and transforming grace today. We love you. Praise you. 